is Monday, October 26th. I'm Caleb Farley, and this is the fourth episode of the Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be talking about the history behind a house located out in Fallsburg on uh, Route 3 that is about 120 years old. I'll also be talking about some of the strange occurrences that have happened here in the library since I've started working. And I'll also be including an interview that I had with Dr. Ronald Enders. Uh, Dr. Enders is a local um, paranormal investigator. And we'll be talking about some of the things he's investigated, how he does investigations, and other things like that. In general library news, we had our grand opening back on uh, October 1st. Our renovation is finally complete. We had a drive through circus that uh, our patrons could drive through in their cars and visit. Had, I think it was close to a thousand people go through for it, and it was, it was really fun. We had a good time with it. Uh, our story hour trick-or-treat was last week. Um, we still have to do social distancing guidelines, but we were able to take the kids around to the different businesses in downtown Louisa and show off some costumes and let them get some candy. And we really appreciate all of the local businesses and organizations that helped participate in that. If you're curious about the programs and events that are going on in the Lawrence County Public Library, check out our website, lcplky.org, and we also have a Facebook page. Uh, it's just Lawrence County Public Library. That is where we post the events that's going on, um, specific details about it, um, all the information you need to you know, participate and attend some of our programs. We do still have our Lawrence County Public Library genealogy page. Um, that's where I post updates from the genealogy collection and I use that to communicate with the public. Um, if you have any questions you're able to message me directly through that uh, in case you don't email me that much or you'd rather use Facebook Messenger instead of give me a call here at the library. In 1901 Nancy Jordan and W.A. Rice and wife Sorilda Rice sold half an acre lot number 58 to the IOOF of Fallsburg, Lodge Number 285. The Oddfellows Lodge at Fallsburg was part of the Grand Castle of Kentucky Knights of the Golden Eagle. Fallsburg's two greatest social function of a continuing nature in the late 1800s and early 1900s were usually found in religious and fraternal activities. In the year of 1890, a charter was granted by the Grand Lodge of the State of Kentucky of the Independent Order of Oddfellows and this lodge soon became one of the largest and most active in the state. Mr. Dump Dilly was secretary for this order for many years. Soon thereafter, a charter was issued by the Grand Lodge of the Rebeccas, the Auxiliary of the Oddfellows. Ms. Dora Jordan and Mrs. John H. Cooksey served as secretaries of this lodge for a number of years. The Oddfellows built a large, two-story wood frame building to serve as the Oddfellows Hall after the purchase of the lot in 1901, and both orders occupied the second story of this structure until their charters were surrendered in 1931. The downstairs portion through many of these years was the scene of practically all of the public, social, religious, and fraternal community life. When the charter of the Oddfellows and the Rebeccas was surrendered, this property was sold to Mr. W.A. Bill Dyer in 1940 who later moved the building a few feet from its original location and converted its use into living quarters and a grocery store, but a remodeled version of the original building still stands today. William A. Dyer left the property to his wife and daughter in a will. 
his widow, Lizzie Dyer, turned the property over to her daughter, Dorothy F. Dyer Jordan. In 1987, Dorothy F. Jordan and her husband, Adam H. Jordan, sold the property to Joel David Martin. In the same year, Joel David Martin sold the property to Billy R. Cassidy and wife Wanda M. Cassidy. Mr. and Mrs. Cassidy turned the property over to their son, Brian Cassidy, in 2011. This information came from the Fallsburg, Kentucky and Beyond book by Wanda Cassidy and Reba Witt. This building, once known as the Oddfellows Lodge of Fallsburg, is now more commonly known as the Fallsburg Haunted House. I actually worked at the Fallsburg Haunted House from 2012 through 2018 with a few of my good friends. Um, I started out as one of the storytellers on the trailers and ended up running the control room in the haunted house and handling all of our social media. Um, I, I truly believe the building is haunted. Um, me, me and my friend Todd Branham, we both experienced things in that house that we could not explain. Um, we heard things when we shouldn't be hearing things. Things acted the way they shouldn't be acting. One year when we were filming a promotional video for The Haunted House, it was myself, Tob, and two of our actresses from The Haunted House, and the building had been completely locked up. Um, we got there to film in the downstairs area. We unlocked the door, went to the area, set up our camera setup, and started filming, and we hear somebody walking around upstairs. And it was it sounded like heavy footsteps from boots and what sounded like wooden boxes being shifted around upstairs. So of course we were thoroughly freaked out. We went upstairs to look around and we can't find anybody. Um, nobody had come in behind us. The back door to the building was still locked. Uh, we have no explanation for it. There were other instances where programmed tricks that we had that ran off um, circuit boards where you would program it to say, you know, after somebody walks past this, a trick is supposed to happen, like an air cannon going off or a, a panel moving on its own. Um, it's, all, it's all simple computer programming. Um, one night we had been joking around about how some of us in the house believed that the house was haunted and other people thought well, they were, you know, it was just us being paranoid. They were skeptics. Um, and everything just happened to start going wrong that night. Tricks that had been programmed all season long lost their programming like they were brand new, had never been used before. Um, we used things called air cannons, which was this cylinder where air pressure would build up and you would flip a switch and the air would release and make a really loud um, noise and a gust of air would come out or instead of a switch it would be automated um, those were going off on their own we had tricks that would spray water that started going off on their own um, yeah it was stuff was just going wrong and you know, after that night, I think people in the house started to believe that there was something going on in the house. One of the traditions we had at the house was 
on one of the final nights, we would have all of the actors come out um, in costume and everybody be chilling in front of the haunted house and we'd do a cast photo. Um, one of the last photos we took while they were still working in the original haunted house, everybody was lined up in front of the bottom doors where you would enter into the house. Everything was fine until we noticed the next day in the photo, in the door area, back behind where everybody was standing, kind of up in the upper left corner of the door frame, there was some kind of face. Um, in all reality, it was just shadows, I'm guessing, or texture on the wall or something. But plain as day, it looks like there was somebody in the photo that shouldn't have been in the photo. The original owner of the Oddfellows Lodge, later known as the Fallsburg Haunted House, was William A. Rice. He was born January 24, 1859, and passed away February 7, 1922. His wife, Sorelda Ann Boggs, was born November of 1863 and died July 2, 1932. Both were born and died in Lawrence County, Kentucky. Dr. Rice was described as being a practically lifelong resident of what had become over the many years of the booming town of Fallsburg by Dan H. Cooksey in his A Short History of Fallsburg, printed in the History of Lawrence County, Kentucky, page 54. In the 1920 Lawrence County Census, Dr. Rice is listed as living in the Cooksey Fork area as being a doctor, age 60, with wife Rilda, age 56, and nephew, age 13, all born in Kentucky. In the Directory of Deceased American Physicians, William A. Rice is listed as receiving his license in Kentucky in 1893. The school he attended was the Louisville Medical College. It also lists the cause of his death as pneumonia. Another piece of property that Dr. W. A. Rice owned in Fallsburg was the Fallsburg Mill. The mill was purchased by Dr. Rice and Sime Collinsworth, who operated the mill until 1915. Dr. Rice sold his interest in the mill to Collinsworth, who operated the mill until his death. At his death, the mill fell into the hands of G.R. Vincent of Louisa. This information comes from page 304 in the Fallsburg, Kentucky and Beyond book by Wanda Cassidy and Reba Witt. While looking into more information about the Oddfellows Lodge, later known as the Fallsburg Haunted House, I found another article in the Lawrence County History book titled 1870 Bookcase. This is article T68 on page 57. In the year 1940, William Alfred and Lizzie Tomlin Dyer bought the Oddfellows Lodge Hall in Fallsburg, Kentucky. They owned and operated a general store and filling station in Fallsburg from 1940 to 1957. In the Oddfellows Hall was a large walnut bookcase. Milton Dalton employed Jerry Crank, an expert woodcarver, to build this bookcase out of walnut lumber in the year 1870. This bookcase was in possession of Mr. and Mrs. William A. Dyer from 1940 till the time of Lizzie Dyer's death, February 8, 1985. The property was sold in July of 1987. Today, the bookcase is in the possession of their daughter, Dorothy Dyer Jordan, of Fairborn, Ohio, 45324. This was written by Dorothy F. Jordan. Not too far after the previous article about the bookcase is another article titled Lawrence County Phenomenon. In History of Kentucky, written by Richard H. Collins, published in 1874, this article was under Lawrence County. Letter of Daniel Casey, February 24, 1873. 
phenomenon. On Big Blaine Creek in Lawrence County on the night of February 13, 1873, a strange rumbling sound resembling distant thunder was found to have originated from an opening in the earth of a dark color or smoky appearance and about two feet in diameter near a ledge of sandstone. Pieces of the stone weighing about 10 pounds were broken off and thrown a considerable distance. The earth around this opening for several feet was thoroughly cleared as if swept with a broom from all accumulations of loose dirt, leaves, and small stones. Three other explosions near the same spot were heard within three days before. I remember my father, James Casey, showing us the hole in the ground when I was a child. The boys cut grapevines and tied together and dropped down in the hole to try to measure how deep it was. They never found the bottom. That was in the early 1900s. Now, over 100 years later, there are no signs of the hole. I remember the general area, but not the exact location. This is by Mrs. Mona Casey Bentley. Up next is the phone interview I did with Dr. Ronald Enders. Um, we are still under social distancing guidelines, so this one had to be conducted over the phone instead of in person. This is Caleb Farley with the Lawrence County Public Library. I'm doing an interview with Dr. Ronald Enders over the phone. Um, it is October 29th, 2020, so we are still dealing with COVID, so this interview is over the phone instead of in person. Do you care to introduce yourself, talk to yourself about it a little bit? Yeah, hello, my name is Dr. Ron Enders, and uh, I believe that the nature of uh, this podcast is dealing with um, uh, spectral stuff, ghost hauntings, and, and that. And, uh, I have been doing that virtually all my life, uh, way before we even had electronic uh, equipment to assist us with it, as the old uh, roll film cameras and uh, our, our, our sense perceptions. And um, yeah, so I'm an old hand at this. Uh, I've had paranormal groups. I've taught classes at it. And always, always fun to talk about it. Oh, sure. So as a paranormal investigator, um, what exactly is it that you do when you go into a, a home or a public building or anything like that? When you're, when you're a newbie and you're starting out, you just go in there and, and look for what you look for. But when you've done it for a while, you have like a battle strategy set out. Uh, first, you go into a house and make sure that uh, you do EMF ratings to make sure that you don't have any uh, electromagnetic fields being caused by faulty wiring or actually aquarium fish tanks cause a lot of that kind of stuff, which would uh, set the rest of our delicate equipment to read a positive when it was not necessarily coming from spiritual energy. If, if you don't have large numbers of EMF and other things running, uh, what you're going to get on your machinery is more likely going to be generated by something that's um, you know not of this world. So that's how mm -hmm. we, we check for our... We validate, right? And and then and then we said what various equipment we're going to use, whether it's going to be um, visual recordings, uh, sound recordings, uh, sensor detectors. Uh, we we have a whole arsenal of stuff that we work with. So you use and a lot of different kinds of equipment to try to eliminate. Okay, so this could be faulty wiring. This could be electric interference from something else. Right, or temperature spikes that are caused mm -hmm. by naturally environmental factors in the house as mm -hmm. opposed to uh, spiritual energy. Because when, when you have spiritual energy in a house, it's going to be going after whatever kind of energy sources it can find. It draws from, draws from stuff. And if there's nothing that's going to be drawing from in the house, then it's going to be 
drawing basically from your stuff, and that's how we get our information. Mm, okay. Um, have there been any buildings in Lawrence County that you've investigated that you're able to talk about? I know when you go into someone's home, that's personal information, but if there's a public building or anything like that we've investigated, you can talk about. Yeah, we we did quite a bit of uh, investigation in a number of locations. Again, many were many were private homes. Uh, one place we did investigate quite thoroughly was the uh, the local the local jail, the old jail down in the yeah, in the, the courthouse there in downtown. Yeah. Uh, just a one cell jail in in the back of, of a room, but uh, with quite a bit of a notorious history to it. Uh, a woman had been falsely accused of or was supposedly accused of having um, uh, caused someone to, uh, to to die at one time in the past uh, or, or something to do with it. It's, it's, it's a tall tale. It's an urban legend. But during our investigation, she actually um, came forward and vindicated herself in saying that uh, she had been innocent and that she had been, uh, she'd been murdered. Uh, nothing that you can put in a court of law, but... It's definitely there, and I won't tell the names, but you gave the names right. of the people who did it. And the, it was really a fantastic mm -hmm. investigation. Right. So that was so one of it, our... It wouldn't necessarily be admissible in court, but it may bring some kind of closure to the family. Yes, and I, and I believe at that time it, it did. And okay. then we had, the, we had in one of the department stores, an old department store downtown, we had the haunted Santa Claus mannequin, mannequin which was really... <laughs> <laughs> It was really interesting, uh, and uh, again, lots and lots of uh, different different uh, you know locations. This this town is extremely active. Mm -hmm. Just about any building you're going to go into or anywhere you're going to, mm -hmm. you will find something. Oh yeah. And uh, the cause of that is is uncertain. Mm -hmm. I do know that um, from previous uh, work with. Uh, the spiritual world that uh, if anybody is a fan, 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 um, the, uh, fan of like The Walking Dead and, and the zombie shows where they have hordes of zombies moving around, uh, I was informed on several occasions by uh, spirits that uh, ghosts work the same way, mm -hmm. that uh, they get the collective energy from multiple generations and then people just follow these, these like these highways around mm -hmm. drawing energy from each other. Mm -hmm. And they sort of get stuck together, like um, you know, like a iron iron on a magnet. You know, it kind of glues them all together. Yeah. And, and I believe we have quite a bit of that those those um, intersections through this area, which counts for quite a bit of what we have. Oh, I agree. I mean, it's a very old part of the country, right? Um, yeah, and you know, we were occupied during the Civil War, so. Of course, there's going to be a lot of things going on that we might not be able to explain. Right, uh, and and I did I did at one time have one Civil War veteran who came out and said, "I'm looking for the captain. They shot me, captain. I got to find my captain." Oh, wow. which is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I've always personally believed in you know the paranormal and things that I can't explain. But you know, since I've started working here, I fully believe this building is haunted. I think there's something to this location. Um, uh, something I talked about uh, it's, it's going to be in this podcast um, we have a piece of the original 1967 building and right. we put it in one of the display cases and we had weird things start happening in the genealogy collection 
I took that piece out, everything's been fine since. <laughs> right. Yeah, back when the before the library renovation, uh, there were there were definitely things going on there, mm -hmm. and that I was I was I was part of uh, investigating it at the time. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, a very unsettling at times. <laughs> yeah, no, I'll agree to it. Uh, well, um, if somebody was interested in starting to investigate the paranormal or anything like that, what would you suggest to them? First of all, I would say it is you need to be very careful mm -hmm. because when you're when you start asking questions to things you can't see, you're not always sure what's going to be answering them. Mm. I mean, there are there are there are regular spirits of, of people who've passed away that are, are lingering, but there's also a number of other different kinds of entities and uh, uh, pre-human forces and stuff out there who would just love to. Uh, take advantage of somebody who wasn't able to say, "Hey, wait a minute, I'm I'm not going to talk to you. This doesn't sound right." So, I mean, you can have a lot of fun with this. Uh, main thing is just be be careful, to be on your on your guard. Uh, especially like a lot of times you'll hear a little kid call out for help. Ninety percent of the time, it's not a little kid; it's something quite menacing. So, right. But they're, they're uh, going I mean, to try get to started. Them. Yeah, get started. Get yourself a you know, a digital camera, uh, uh, snap some pictures, and mostly get yourself one of the little digital uh, tape recorders so you can get the uh, electromagnetic voices. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't hear most of the time what they're saying, but if you turn one of those on and you ask some questions, and that they can actually talk to you directly. Uh, so when you play it back, you hear it. It's oh. really cool, but it's really spooky, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, some of our friends and I, we did it back when we were in high school. Um, I don't remember where exactly it was. It was somewhere out towards the lake. And it was the first and last time that we did it. <laughs> well, um, those are really all the questions I had for you. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about or anything you'd like to let people know? Well, um, just like I said, stay safe with it and have fun with it. And, and don't get discouraged if you don't get big flashy things. You know, everybody wants to go out and see a, a full-bodied apparition come jumping out. But uh, that rarely happens. If you see a couple of them in your lifetime, that's that's a big deal. But you can get lots and lots of uh, voices if you know what to what to listen for. But you might walk through a whole house and say, "Well, man, nothing happened here at all." Until you get back and you start looking at stuff and listening and saying, "Well, that's freaky." Mm -hmm. Like the time I, I I I was somewhere and I said, "Is there anybody here with me?" and I didn't hear anything, and I went back and played my recording, and this very sinister voice came out and said, I'm standing right behind you. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> yeah, that, that would definitely uh, mess with somebody. Yeah. So. Well, and, then yeah. Again, and, then, and then again, ghosts are good or ghosts are bad, and just like mm -hmm. people are good or bad. So, mm -hmm. you know, you run into all kinds of stuff. Oh, for sure. friends trick-or-treating to the high bottom area of Louisa. Eventually we went past what I remember as a two-story white brick building and my mom said that the woman that used to live there killed her husband and buried him in the basement. I assumed at the time my mom was just trying to mess with me and I didn't really think much of it. 
Fast forward to about two and a half years ago when I started working here at the Lawrence County Public Library and I'm going through the vertical files and I find a folder listed as Louisa Crimes. Me being a true crime fanatic, I started flipping through it and I found an article dated July 7th, 1955 from the Big Sandy News with the headline, Louisa Woman Kills Husband, Hacked Body Found in Cellar. I hit the jackpot, so of course I had to read through it. The article reads that a tragedy that too often doesn't become real until it becomes local or operates in our own community is what faced Chief Deputy Sheriff Ed Fife Thursday, June 30th, when he was sent to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Estel Stucker on US 23, about one mile south of Louisa, and found the mutilated body of Estel Stucker, age 59, a veteran of World War I, who had been shot and beaten to death, and his legs hacked off in the basement of the Stucker home. The body had been placed, but not buried, in a shallow basement grave. Stucker had been dead about 36 hours. At a coroner's hearing conducted Friday morning by L. Byron Young at the courthouse in Louisa, Chief Deputy Fife told a jury of six men the following story. Fife said he was alerted Thursday afternoon by Fort Gay relatives of Mrs. Garnet Workman Stucker, 42, that she had told a sister in Fort Gay of a struggle with her husband, which she said occurred around midnight Tuesday after he came home drunk. She said he struck her and that he always beats me when he is drinking. They argued, she said, and he went downstairs. She said she heard a shot and went to the basement to find her husband seriously wounded in the head. Mrs. Stucker told Fife that she hit him on the head with a pipe to keep him from suffering. Wednesday was spent digging a grave in the dirt portion of the basement. Mrs. Stucker said she cut off her husband's legs with a large hatchet to make him fit in the shallow hole. The hatchet was near the body, Fife said, and the 32 caliber revolver used in the death was produced by Mrs. Stucker when officers went to the home on Thursday. Mrs. Stucker went to Fort Gay, West Virginia Thursday morning, told her sister Mrs. Emily Castle about the shooting, and said she was going home to shoot herself. Mrs. Castle called her husband, Darvin, from work and they went to the sheriff's office. Deputy Fife with County Attorney Dan Ball and the Castles found Mrs. Stucker in bed asleep when they arrived at the five-room frame house. Stucker's body was found beside the hole in which the legs were placed but not buried. A trail of blood from a mattress on the bed, the only piece of furniture in the basement, indicated the body had been dragged from the bed to the grave. Mrs. Stucker had a black eye and a cut on her nose, which she said were inflicted during the fatal argument. The coroner's jury, after hearing the above evidence of Fife and a few other witnesses, found Mrs. Stucker guilty of murdering her husband, Estel Stucker. Mrs. Stucker later confessed to County Attorney Dan D. Ball the brutal slaying of her husband after repeatedly denying it to large county officials. A hearing was set for Tuesday morning for Mrs. Stucker, but due to self-inflicted wounds, she was declared unable to appear. The woman, Sheriff Ed Sparks reported, slashed her throat and arms in a suicide attempt Sunday morning. Nearby, a piece of sharp-edged broken glass was found in her cell, and officers said she had knocked out a cell window and used the glass to slash her arms and throat. She suffered only minor injuries and, after receiving emergency treatment at Riverview Hospital, was returned to her cell. The sheriff said Mrs. Stucker used blood from her wounds for ink and a match for a pen in writing a note. The text of the note was not disclosed. He added that the woman told of her love for her sisters and appreciation of the good treatment received at the jail. 
We're just going to have to keep a closer watch on Mrs. Stocker, committed Sheriff Sparks. Clarks County Judge David F. Weitz said no request for bond had been made by the accused woman, but should it be requested, it will be fixed at $20,000. Graveside funeral services were conducted at 2.30 p.m. Saturday for the slain man at Pine Hill Cemetery, with Reverend J.C. Hager officiating. He is survived by his wife and one brother, Hubert, of Shelbyville, Kentucky. Funeral services were under the direction of Young Funeral Home. After reading this article and thoroughly freaking out over it, I gave my mom a call and I asked her, you know, why were you telling me a story like this when I was like six or seven? She thought that it would try to scare me and it probably did at the time. I just didn't think it was real. It turned out it most definitely was real and I have a bit of a personal connection to the story. My grandmother, Helen Dameron, was a beautician here in Louisa for a long time and as it turns out when Mrs. Stucker got out of jail my grandmother did her hair until she passed away. I ended up doing a bit more research to see if the story was picked up nationally and I found the July 1st 1955 issue of the Austin Daily Herald out of Austin Minnesota had an article that says, Kills Crippled Husband Then Cuts Off Legs. Louisa, Kentucky. Mrs. Garnet Stucker, 42, admitted yesterday she shot her crippled husband, beat him to death with a pipe, then hacked off his legs to, quote-unquote, make him fit in a shallow grave. She was held for investigation pending a coroner's inquest today. Chief Deputy Edward Fife said Mrs. Stucker signed a statement giving details of the death of her husband, Estel, 59, who used crutches because of arthritis. In her statement, she said her husband came home drunk and they argued. He hit her with his crutch, then went to the basement to sleep. She shot him in the head while he slept, she said. Then she hit him in the head three times with an 18-inch pipe to keep him from suffering. She said she dug a grave in the dirt portion of the basement and severed her husband's legs with a large hatchet to make him fit. The Stuckers were married in 1940 and had no children. He was a former construction worker. I found a few other interesting bits of information in the same issue of the Big Sandy News. This was the same issue that the Kentucky State Board of Education announced that they would be abolishing school segregation. I'll just remind you that this was 1955. The Greenbow Lake Project near Ashland was officially authorized as a state park recently by Henry Ward, State Commissioner of Conservation, at a luncheon at the Henry Clay Hotel in Ashland. There's also a section towards the bottom of the page that says, Citizens want to know. Citizens of Louisa want to know why the State Highway Department does not build roadside tables for tourists. More people would come our way if a few conveniences were placed along the highway in this section. State Highway Department, people want to know. Why won't you build tables on the side of the road? Here at the library, we've all had weird things happen to us while we've been working here that we just can't really explain. Uh, we like to joke around that it's a ghost named William. One Saturday morning, I stopped by the library before I went out to Blaine for the Genealogy Society meeting. And as I'm walking past the stacks, I have that feeling that there's somebody else in here with me. Um, 
I look over and it looks like somebody is walking in pace with me going through the stacks. Um, not exactly side by side, but at kind of like a slight angle. So it was more like I saw something out of the corner of my eye than actually seeing something there. But I heard footsteps and I felt like there was somebody else there walking with me. Um, we've had a couple other people that work here describe something similar happening. Not too long ago when the renovation was still going on, one of the workers brought over a piece of the original 1967 library building. And if you'll remember the outside of the older building, it had kind of this foam texture on the outside that had what looked like quartz set into it. Um, and he brought me a, about a brick size square of that. And I set it back in you know, my storage closet until the reopening. Well, we were going through the genealogy collection trying to figure out what we we're going to put in the display cases and I put that piece of the side of the old building on one of our display shelves. The next day that piece is tipped over and has knocked a few things loose on the shelf. Didn't think anything of it, we prop it back up. A couple days later, um, Melissa, one of our people here at the library, hears this loud noise coming from the genealogy collection. So she goes over and one of the lights that's mounted up in the ceiling in the display cases has come loose and has slid down and looked like it almost smacked up into the wall. So we get a hold of the construction people, they mount the piece back up in the ceiling and while the display case is open, I take out that piece of the original building. Um, we haven't had anything weird happen in the genealogy collection since. So with that, we'll bring our episode to a close. Hopefully everybody learned something new about Lawrence County. and It wasn't necessarily scary stuff, but it was Halloween, so I had to do something spooky for it. Uh, next month is November, and it is Veterans Day. So I have a plan on something that I want to do. Um, a while back, we were given a donation of letters from World War II that were written from a Howard Farmer Skaggs sent to his mother um, here in Lawrence County. I've been working on digitizing those. I have all of them scanned in, and I'm working on transcribing them right now. So I'll go over a little bit about that process. I'll talk about the letters. Um, it should be interesting. Um, I'm going to try and get that up on the website so it's viewable whenever the podcast, next episode of the podcast is finished. But it's almost the weekend. Halloween's coming up here in a few days. Hopefully you all don't eat too much candy this weekend. And if you do and get sick, I'll gladly take your extra Reese's Cups off your hands. But until next time, have a good one.